We're going to look at our passage for today, which is John chapter 1, 29-34. John chapter 1, 29-34. Right, here it is. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so they might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and rested on him. I didn't know him, but he sent me to baptize. But he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, uh, we thank you that we can gather together uh, in your presence here today to hear all that it is that you have for us uh, this day. Lord, thank you that this day is another opportunity for us to come and have a healthy meal. Lord, to eat what is uh, prepared, presented to us, that we might be nourished, and that we might be uh, healthy believers and grow more into the image and likeness of your Son. Only you can do that, Lord. Only you can do that by the power of your Spirit. So we ask for your help now. In Christ's name, amen. Um, if you are new with us this morning, we are in a series called uh, Good Life, where we are looking at the Gospel of John, the book of John uh, in the Bible. Uh, John uh, was a, a disciple of Jesus. He walked with Jesus and uh, saw all of his uh, ministry for three years. And at the end of his life, he wrote this book. All right, he wrote this book because he wanted you to know what Jesus was all about. He wanted you to know what all the hype and all the commotion uh, about Jesus was all about. Now, I've been a Christian for a minute, uh, and throughout the years, um, I have... Uh, talked with all kinds of people about Jesus, and uh, I've heard all kinds of ideas about Jesus that don't necessarily line up with the Jesus that we see in the Bible, right? So John is writing to us because he wants to challenge you on how uh, Jesus might be different than what you heard, okay? He's saying, okay, this is who Jesus is, and Jesus is way more important than you ever realize. Massively important and far better than you could possibly imagine. This is, this is what the Gospel of John is all about. And our passage today is, is a great place to see just that. So in our passage today, here's, here's, here's the big idea. Jesus is the Lamb of God. All right, that's what we're going to look at today. So we'll start out with the Lamb, okay? The Lamb. Look at verse 29. The next day, John, and John the Apostle, don't get confused, it's talking about John the Baptist here. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, I got this um, log peeler from my chainsaw, right? It, uh, it, it attaches to the chainsaw, and I got it because I'm going to build a cabin, right? No, I'm just kidding, I'm not going to do that. But I did get this log peeler, right? And, and you, had to, you had to drill through, I had to drill through the bar on, on my, my chain 
on the, on the on chainsaw in order to test this uh, log pillar. Had to bolt it on and everything. Right? The Bible, the scriptures are connected, let's say, with bolts. Okay? You take the whole Bible, and there are all these bolts that connect the story of the Bible together. And one of the bolts is the Lamb of God. Right? You could tell the whole story of the Bible, which we're going to do that, right, with this theme of the Lamb of God. You don't even have to turn the Bible just a couple times, right? First couple pages. You get to Genesis chapter 22, and you, are, you encounter the Lamb, right? And Genesis 22 is the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac, and uh, they were up on this mountain, and they were there to offer up a sacrifice to God in worship. And uh, Abraham and Isaac are up there, and, and Isaac was like, Dad, we got the fire uh, raging here uh, for the uh, sacrifice. Uh, where is the lamb? Right? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. But the whole time, Abraham knew that God had called him to sacrifice his own son Isaac as an offering of worship. Think on that one for a second. Now, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? That, that sounds uh, not right. Uh, I, uh, I, I had a co-worker at one time that rejected the Scriptures, rejected the Bible, and Christianity because of this very story. And, uh, it, it is, and that's because it is badly misinterpreted. Okay? Let's think about, okay, what is the story of Isaac's birth anyway? The story of Isaac's birth in the Bible is a very important story, by the way. Um... Isaac was promised to God by Abraham. Abraham and his wife couldn't have children, and God came to him and promised that you're going to have a son, and, uh, and that, matter of fact, God was going to save the world through this child somehow, that the Messiah, the Savior, uh, one of Abraham's descendants would uh, bless the world. And Isaac's uh, birth was a miracle, so much so that when the messengers of God came uh, to Abraham, Abraham's wife was over in the tent hanging out, and, and uh, the, the messengers were like, hey, your wife is going to have a baby. And she, she was in there laughing. She thought it was hysterical. So, and uh, when, uh, when, Abraham's, when Abraham's wife had the baby, he was 100 years old uh, when he was born. So when God asked him to sacrifice his son, it was in that context. It was in the context of his unbreakable promise that somehow, through this son, he would save the world. And that he, he would bless uh, all nations uh, through Isaac. And after he had already worked this miracle of him being born. So it wasn't something cruel. It wasn't something random. And here's what's going on. Here, here, here's the purpose for that story. Abraham, like all of us, doubted whether God was really good and tried to force his plans on God. Anybody ever try to do that? God, I got a wonderful plan, and you must bless it. Right? And that's what was going on. So God asking him to offer up Isaac was God's way of testing whether he truly believed that he was really as good as he says he is, and that he can make good on all of his promises. That's what was going on. Look what, look what, uh, look what it says in Genesis 22, uh, 13 to 14, right after that. God told him, stop it. Right? Don't sacrifice your son. Abraham looked and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. 
So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. And so it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. So right out the gates, we see that this, this, this uh, ram was offered as a substitute sacrifice uh, for Isaac. And look what Abraham names the mountain. It will be provided. A sacrifice will be provided. A substitute will be provided. So if I've, out, if I've invited you to community group, you probably got a text message from me like this. Right? Hey, I'd love to invite you to community group. Blah, 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 blah. Here's the address. Dinner provided. Right? It's all provided. Right? Because you know, we want you to come out. You don't have to bring nothing. You just bring yourself, uh, bring your family, and you come. You don't got to go to Food Line or McDonald's. You just show up. And man, dinner is, is, is ready for you. Right? So this story is telling us that God will provide a substitute sacrifice. Come to the second book in the Bible. Right? We're talking about the story of the lamb. And, and you counter the lamb again in Exodus chapter 12. Right? It's the story of Israel. They're down in Egypt. They're, in, uh, they're enslaved underneath uh, Pharaoh. And there is absolutely nothing that they could do to, to get free. They couldn't run. They couldn't have a rebellion, an uprising. There's nothing. They were under uh, the crushing weight of uh, slavery. So God raised up a deliverer. He raised up Moses and sent him uh, to Egypt to Pharaoh, to pronounce, uh, his pe- to set his people free, and to bring about the judgment of God upon Pharaoh and Egypt with the ten plagues. And the tenth plague was the worst, or was the most devastating, because it was for everybody. Egyptians and Israelites alike, everybody was going to get this plague. He was going to destroy every firstborn male, God was. And Israel's only hope to escape that judgment was a sacrificial lamb. So Moses came and proclaimed the good news to uh, Israel that if they took a lamb and they slaughtered it and they took the blood and they painted the door frame of their houses, little here, little here, little here, then they would escape the judgment and be set free. Do you guys see the foreshadowing even in that, Right? We got a little blood here, a little blood here, and a little here. Right? You can already see Jesus, the Lamb of God, on the cross, being slaughtered for uh, our sin. All right, so fast forward. Right? Uh, there's a lot more we could say. Uh, but Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet. Uh, we just read, we just read Isaiah uh, 53. And uh, Israel uh, was God's people. They were in, in the land of Canaan for, for hundreds of years. God had blessed them, but they continued to rebel. They continued to um, be violent and uh, break God's commands and re- reject his word and fill the uh, community full of all kinds of false gods and false religion, fill the land full of bloodshed. And God warned them over and over again that his judgment was going to come, and eventually the, the hammer fell. He sent the Babylonians in, captured them, took them away into, uh, into exile, and there they found themselves again. Locked up in slavery with nothing they could do about it. Right? They couldn't get away. They could not save themselves. And look what God says is their only hope. This is what Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 53, verse 7. We just read it. He, this person, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like sheep, like a sheep silent before her shearers. 
he did not open his mouth. So Isaiah looks into the future and tells us about this lamb who is a person, who is their only hope, who is our, our only hope, this innocent lamb, and he's going to be a substitute sacrifice for sin. So John is saying to us that Jesus is the lamb of God. That the whole, God has been telling us all along that he was going to provide a lamb. John is saying that Jesus had to come. And Jesus had to die as a substitute sacrifice for us. I want you to listen to me. Jesus had to die for you at the cross. Let that sit on you for a second. It was necessary. No other way. So, why did Jesus have to offer his life like a substitute lamb for you? You see, Jesus' death on the cross is God's solution to your greatest problem. Um, unless I'm mistaken, uh, you know, the, we're, putting the, we're putting the bypass in here in Morgan County, and, and on, on, on Route 9, we got the overpass there. And they had the jackhammer, the foundations of that thing, right? I believe because there were some cracks uh, forming in, in the concrete. So they had dumped a ton of money into that, a ton, tons of concrete, and they just jackhammered uh, the, whole, uh, the whole thing. And that, that is extreme, uh, isn't it? But it was because if they didn't do that, it would have caused major problems uh, in, in the future. It was necessary. Uh, in order for that to happen. So follow me here for a second. What type of situation must we be in that God had to do something so extreme that the Son of God had to die for us at the cross? That he had to become the slain lamb? What predicament were we, are we in that God had to become a lamb and be slaughtered for us? That's what we're going to look at next with the offering. The offering. Look at this. Verse 29 again. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God, and check this out, who takes away the sin. You see that? The sin of the world. Jesus was a sacrificial offering for sin. The severity of the sacrifice points to the seriousness of our situation. Is that too many yeses for y'all? Let me say it again. The severity of the sacrifice points to the seriousness of our situation. You guys follow me? Jesus is the Lamb of God because of sin. That's why he came into the world. That's why he spilled his blood at the cross. That's why he was crucified. Because of sin. What is sin? When you hear the word sin, what, what comes into your mind? What is it? Yeah, I think that's how most people think about uh, sin, and that's not necessarily wrong, is that it's wrong things that we do, right? Um, I found this uh, survey uh, conducted of Americans, uh, uh, what, what they think sin is, right? And we got the usual suspects on there. What, what do you think would be on that list? Adultery, racism, um, using drugs, and then there was uh, others gambling, using tobacco. I thought this one was interesting. Only 7% of people think that spanking, spanking your child when he or she misbehaves is sin. Only 7. So that means 93% of people think 
That kid needs to get a, little, get a spanking, right? You need, you, need, you need to take care of that kid right there. 93% of people say, hey, go for it, right? So, but, you know, when I talk to people, I think a lot of people have a hard time um, really believing that they are that bad, that the Son of God would have to come down and substitute himself as a sacrifice uh, for sin. Right? How, how, do we, how do we come to think like that? Why, why do we think that? Like, am, I, am I really that bad that he, it was necessary for him to uh, die for me? And I think it's because we don't understand right, how serious a situation sin really is. Right? Uh, especially in the church. Right? When, when you hear the word sin, you're probably thinking of a particular sins. Like we just, uh, that list we just ran through, right? Or that's what you were thinking, wasn't it? All these little things uh, that we do that are, that are wrong. But I want you to look at the, here. Is sin in the singular or plural right there? Singular. Jesus came not to take away the sins of the world, but the sin, singular, of the world. And that is an important observation. Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. You see, when the Bible talks about sin in the singular, it's talking about something on the foundational level. Think, think the bypass and the beams going across there and the foundation that supports those beams. It's talking about the root of sin. Adultery, racism, using drugs, whatever it is, right? Those are the fruit of the root, which is singular um, sin. I want to show you this. Look at what God says uh, when Cain, uh, Adam's son, uh, you know, is angry with his brother Abel. The fourth chapter of the, of the first book of the Bible. Look what it says. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. If you do what is right, this is the Lord speaking here, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, look at this. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin singular is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. It wants you. It's coming to get you, but you must rule over it. Look at, this, look at the word here. Sin is crouching. That same Hebrew word is used of big cats in the Bible, right? Like lions. So what you need to think, what you need to see here is this image of a mountain lion that is hunting you. You don't know it's there. It's up on the rocks, it's in the tree, it's hiding in the grass, and it's crouching, right? And it's, it tears you apart. It, sh it shreds you. It goes, for, it goes for your throat. That's sin. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about sin as a power or force. Look, look at it, it says in his own testimony in Romans chapter 7, as a believer, this is his testimony, as a Christian. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I am no longer the one that does it. But look at this. But it is the sin that lives in me. You see that? Paul is not saying here, I'm not responsible for my actions or my behavior. Right? Uh, on the contrary. What, what I want to uh, point out to you is him saying sin is living within him. You see that? It's a power. It's alive. It's something. Right? It, it's, it's, this, um, it's this power of imprisonment and slavery and chaos and destruction and rebellion and death. 
that lives within all of us. Jesus, in John chapter 8, puts it like this. Whoever commits sin, like adultery, hatred, anxiety, all these different things, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Right? So all these fruits of sin, the root is a slavery uh, to sin itself. And you might be sitting here thinking, I'm not a slave to sin. I got free will. Right? I- I'm, I'm living my best life. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm living the dream. I'm, I do whatever I want. I make my own choices. I, I forge my, my own path. Um, you know, this is not really me. This is religious talk. Um, there is something that theologians call the noetic effects of sin. And that word noetic comes from the Greek word mind. And what they mean is how sin affects the way that we think. So, one thing that sin has the power over you to do is to make you think that you're just living your life. You're just doing whatever else is doing, living the dream, you know, whatever it is, pursuing your truth, right? But in fact, you are doing exactly what it wants you to do. You're doing what you want to do, but it's got you in its clutches to control you. It is the puppet master with the strings, and you are the puppet. Let me show you uh, this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 says, they are darkened in their understanding. You see that? The message you're, you're thinking all up, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. This is ignorance. They don't know it. In them because of the hardness of their hearts. I want you to think about this. What if sin was so deceptive that even what you think is good and even what you think is the good life could be twisted in evil? Because that's the way sin works. It's deep down. It is massively maddening and confusing to where our whole society and our whole culture thinks this must be the right way to go when in fact God says, no, that's exactly the way that leads to death. And that's the, that's the way uh, sin works. Sin is way worse than you could imagine. That's why you can't just do something about sin. You can't just do something about it. It's got you. That survey of American people also found that a majority of people who describe themselves as Christians, 52% accept a works-oriented means of God's acceptance, which means they think that they can do something about sin. The majority, uh, 52% of people, half of people, who, so split this room in half. Right? I'm not saying which side is which. Uh, split it in half. Half of you guys think that you can do something about your sin. That means half of Christians believe something that Jesus, the Christ, did not teach or believe. Half of Christians think that they can save themselves, or so-called Christians. There is not one thing that you can do to save yourself from sin to free yourself, to earn God's love, or earn God's favor. I mean, what could, what could Egypt, um, what could Israel do under Pharaoh, under, under the iron fist of Pharaoh? Nothing. What could the Hebrews do to come all the way back home from exile in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar? And the, when, these are the greatest, some of the greatest military uh, forces at the time. They couldn't do anything. 
This is what Isaiah says. Isaiah proclaims in Isaiah 64, verse 6. He says, all of us have become like something unclean. And all of our righteousness, the best things we've ever done, are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. Here's what he's saying. All of our best deeds are like a biohazard container where bloody instruments and needles and rags are thrown away. I want you to, you have to, you have to come to grips with what the scriptures are saying to you here. Think about the best things that you've ever done in your entire life. God says, throw them all in the biohazard container because I'm not reaching in there and grabbing any of them uh, as a means by which for me to love you or for me to accept you because they're stained and they're, they're tainted. God's not going to reach in there and grab any of your, your good deeds that you've done and say, well done. You, you've earned acceptance with me. You, you, you've somehow taken care of this massive problem of sin. It is only the Lamb of God slain for us at the cross. It is only Jesus that can take away sin. Why is that? Why is it that only Jesus can take away sin? Let's look at what John says here in this passage. This is the one I told you about in John 30 to 31. Uh, This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. And this is John the Baptist speaking here who came to announce the coming of Jesus to Israel. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. So John the Baptist says that Jesus existed before him. Uh, Which is strange because John the Baptist was born before Jesus, if you remember the story. But he says, John the Baptist, then Jesus. John the Baptist says, no, he existed before me. That's strange. How is that? Well, we've already been told in the book of John. We've already been told that Jesus was in the beginning. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that everything that was created, our entire universe was brought into existence, was caused into existence by Jesus. John has already told us that Jesus has existed forever, right? which means he wasn't a mere man. And that's why he alone was able to pay the debt of sin which we owe. Right? Because sin was never able to clutch him, claw him. Sin was never able to force its way deep down within him. Sin never lived within Christ. Uh, there was a theologian uh, philosopher named Anselm in the 11th century, and this is how he put it. The heavenly kingdom must be filled with men, and if this cannot happen unless satisfaction is made for sin, satisfaction, here, look at this, satisfaction which no one can make but God, and no one ought to make but man. See, we are responsible for our sin, but we can't do anything about it. Then it was necessary for the God-man to make it. And that's what God has did. That's what the God-man has done. That's what Jesus, the eternal Word, who became flesh, 
who was the Lamb of God who substituted himself for our sin at the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean, though? He takes away our, our sin. It means he takes away the sentence of sin. Right? Think about it. If someone commits a crime, sin is a crime against the infinite glory of God and humanity as well. Someone commits a crime, uh, they, go to the, they go to the stand before the judge and the, and the jury and the prosecution, and they get a sentence uh, for that crime. Right? So the sentence for sin is death. That's what God said at the very beginning when Adam, listen, the moment you rebel, you will surely die. Right? So the sentence of sin is death and an eternity of having it our way. That's what sin really is. Sin is really saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. I want, to, I want my own plans. I want my own life apart from you. And God says, you can have that uh, for all of eternity. That's what hell is. See, at the cross, Jesus took the penalty for our sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes that penalty away so that everybody who believes that message, who receives it into your life, who rests upon it and says, yes, I am that person, I am that man or that woman, I'm a sinner. Sin lives within me too. But Christ took the penalty for my sin at the cross. There is no more penalty for your sin. This is why we just sang two songs that said hallelujah. Right? Praise the Lamb. Right? He is worthy of all of our praises because the penalty for sin, there is no more penalty, which means there is no more judgment. Right? This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus because it is finished. That's what he said at the cross. He just cried out at the cross, it is finished, which means he has done everything necessary for the penalty of your sin to be taken away. Right? What, what good news. Well, remember, sin is also a power or a force that lives within us, enslaving us, making us do whatever it wants us to do. Jesus takes that away too. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the power of sin to enslave us. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. So this means that all those who look to Jesus by faith and believe what he's accomplished for us at the cross are able to say no to sin now. Like we know it's lurking in the bushes. You know, we know it's there. And because of his death on the cross, like the claws have been taken out, right? And maybe we got to deal with the teeth of sin, but at least we know that we're not going to be cut up by its claws, right? It's just an illustration. We have the power to repent now, which means we can make an about face. We can uh, course correct, right? We can, okay, I'm, I'm dabbling in sin over here. By the grace of the cross, I can say, all right, I'm, I need to stop that. I need to look to the cross for my forgiveness and keep it moving with Christ. Uh, we can make progress now and, and grow into the, into the person that Jesus uh, wants us uh, to be. We can obey God. We can obey the commands. What he says do, we can do. Because we've been set free from the slavery of sin. So here's what ought to be normal for Christians, by the way. Normal is not defeat and sin, right? And, and, and depression and uh, 
um, you know, um, sin enslaving us, what ought to be normal for Christians is a life of growth in obedience. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a struggle. It's our whole life long. But we ought to be making progress, right? We ought to be growing, moving towards maturity and stability in our lives in Christ. That ought to be the normal. And another reason only Jesus can take away sin is the help that he gives us in all this. The help of the Holy Spirit. As we see it right here in our passage in, in verse 32 and 34. Look at it. John chapter 1, 32-34. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and rested on him. I didn't know him, but he sent me to baptize with water, told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now we got a whole lot going on here uh, in, in this passage. Right? But the main thing is, uh, well, you can't see it there, but it says twice that the Spirit came and rested upon Jesus and stayed with him. So the Spirit was with Christ, empowering him as the Messiah, as the God-man to accomplish our salvation, and he is the one who dishes it out. He is the one who dishes him out, the Spirit. Right? Here's, that, that sounds mystical, but here's all it means. Jesus comes to help us deal with sin in our life. He's, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He comes into our lives to help us wage war against it, to fight it. Right? One, and uh, Jesus, the last thing, takes away the haunting presence of sin. It, it, just imagine if, if you lived in the type of place where there actually were mountain lions out there, you know, uh, coming around your house, you know, you, you, you know they're in the woods, you got a, you got a predator problem around your house, you, you lived in that type of place. Like, that puts you on a whole other level of alert, wouldn't it? Right? Sin is like that, right? We need to be on the alert, but here's the good news. One day, we won't have to do that anymore. One day, Jesus is coming back and he's going to put an arrow right through the heart of sin. Right? He's going to deal with, with the haunting presence uh, of sin when he returns again one day. But what should we do until that day? Right? How can we be on the lookout? How can we, um, how can we fight um, this predator? And that's the last thing, is the beholding. The beholding. And we're going to look at this passage again one more time. John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What are we told to do here? Look. This is, what we're, this is what God is commanding us to do in reference to Jesus being uh, the Lamb of God is to look. And when he says look here, he's not just saying, hey, stare at him. You can't stare at Jesus, by the way, can you? Right now you can't. You don't see him in this room anywhere or anything like that. Look means take it all in. Take it all in what you're hearing here this morning and a lot more. Take it in who Jesus is. He is eternal God who came, became flesh, suffered and died to substitute himself for you at the cross and has put an end uh, to sin 
by his, by his blood. Look means you stare at it in such a way, you take it in until it changes you. That's what it, that's what it means. I was watching this uh, documentary, uh, and uh, it was about the Grand Canyon. And um, these two geologists, they were standing at the, the mouth of the canyon. And uh, you know they had been there many times. And they said, you know, every time I come up here, it's just breathtaking. And, and the other one said, it's huge, isn't it? A mile deep. You can see it from space. You see, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is utterly breathtaking. That's what it means to look at. You, you come and you, can you, you know, you, I don't know, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I'd imagine, I'm kind of scared of heights, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm going to be standing back here, way back here, you know. So what you need to do is you need to get up to the precipice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin and just step back and just look at the grandeur of who he is and what he's done for you at the cross, what he has done for you by substituting himself, by spilling his blood willingly for you is infinitely huge. It is infinite. It is very deep, by the way. It is something so deep that, you know, the Grand Canyon is pretty deep, right? It fills all of heaven. It fills all of earth. as what Jesus has accomplished for us for all of eternity. You know that Jesus Christ is right now and will forever be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know right now there are beings in the presence of Jesus that are so wonderful that if you saw them, you would think you were dead. They are there in the presence of Jesus worshiping Him as the Lamb of God. There are people from thousands of years ago, people like Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is the... Isaac is there in the presence of Jesus saying, thank you, Jesus, for taking my place that day. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you took my place. And Abraham's praising God saying, Lord, thank you. I looked down through eternity. I saw you coming. And I had faith in you that you would be, that, that God would provide the substitute sacrifice for sin one day. And Moses is there in the presence of Jesus saying, thank you. Thank you for being the Passover lamb whose blood was poured out on the true doorposts of the cross so that the judgment would pass over me and my people. Look at it. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. You see, the cross, that bloody cross, and what Jesus has done for us and Him is worthy of a song. Right? When your heart is transformed and you truly look at what God has done for you, you're going to sing about it. Right? And they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. What does that mean? It just means that because Jesus is who he is, and because he spilled his blood, he is the man to accomplish all of God's plans and purposes right now and forever. Because you were slaughtered. And what did that, what did that death accomplish you purchase people for God by your blood from every tribe and every language and every people and nation. Maybe that's you here this morning. Have you come to be like these people in your heart you say, Jesus, you're worthy. You're, you're the one who did this for me. You died for me. You bled for me. I'm a sinner. I need, you. I need your salvation in my life. Have you, have you come to receive him? The good news is you can here this morning. You can't hear, because Jesus died to purchase you. 
right? And you need to come home to him here this morning. And listen, those of you who, who have been believers for a long time, or maybe you just started uh, right here just now, listen, you don't fight sin by looking, just constantly looking at how dangerous it is, right? It is dangerous. We already talked about that, right? No, you, you don't fight sin by looking at how sinful you are, right? Just constantly just, oh, I'm just so messed up, right? You don't fight sin by keeping a list of all the good things that you've done, like your resume, like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing all these good things, right? No, you look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You behold him. You behold the Lamb of God who is the great I am. You study him. No, here, here, here's what you do. You know, like those geologists that were standing there at the mouth of the Grand Canyon? You become a geologist of the Lamb. That's what you do. Right? Those, those guys were nerding out, man. They, they were geeked up about the, the Grand Canyon, all the layers and the fossils, the Colorado River, and, and everything, man. They were just like, they were ready to explode with, with knowledge and excitement about um, the Grand Canyon, right? See, you need to study Jesus like they did. You need to immerse yourself. You need to go down into him and see the layers and the depth of him and don't stop looking at him and dig into him. And here's what you're going to find. You're going to find treasure in him. We just sang it. All my satisfaction is in you. The delight of my heart. Right? When you, when you, when you look at him, you will find him breathtaking. Because he is. And here's the good news. We get to do this together. Right? You, you know those guys uh, that were standing there, those geologists? You know, they were not content to just have that information and those experiences for themselves and just keep it all within. They created a documentary to tell the world about the Grand Canyon. And they were just loving talking about it uh, together. Right? See, looking at the Lamb, beholding Him is not a solo effort. Right? It's too hard, too dangerous to do alone. It's too wonderful not to share with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, when you got something that you're really excited about, right, you want to tell somebody about it. Right? Like, man, this is what happened. Right? Or this is what I had. Or, this, is, this is what I got. And as you keep looking at him, as you keep looking at Jesus and beholding the Lamb, here's what you're going to do. You're going to look back over your life, over the years, and you're going to see how you've gotten free from so many dangers in your life. So many times that sin was, was crouching, right? And you saw it. You saw it and you knew it, right? And you were able to get free. You've come through so many toils and so many struggles and difficulties and snares that were set for you. All because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what we want to respond to.